It's the Ambiguously Blind Podcast with your host, a guy that's great up hearing, but terrible at listening, John Grimes. Hey, 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 greetings. Welcome back to the Ambiguously Blind Studio. Thanks for tuning in, subscribing, and supporting the podcast experience. Our guest for this episode is Brittany Culp. Among many things in her life, uh, Brittany is a exercise and nutrition specialist, uh, a bodybuilder, a model, and a life coach who happens to have a visual impairment. Brittany was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa at an early age, so I want to visit with her about her, her journey with RP and all of the things that she does with uh, Blind Fury Fitness and helping people find their why. Hey, Brittany. Thanks for joining the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be on with you today. You are, I don't know, would you call yourself a fitness guru or like, um, I, I don't know, bodybuilder, nutrition, coaching? You do all kinds of things. How would you classify yeah, yourself? I, I dabble in a lot of things. Um, I mean, yes, on the athlete side of things, I am a bodybuilder. And then as my career, I work primarily as a women's transformation specialist slash fit, fitness coach. Um, and I, I'm also a life coach because before I got into bodybuilding and fitness, my background was in counseling psychology. I actually have a master's of science in counseling psychology. Your, your schooling, uh, did you go to the Texas A&M system? Were you in that system? Yeah, I went to Texas A&M Kingsville. We were the Javelinas. <laughs> All right. Well, my uh, wife is an Aggie from A&M. So I guess that's good. I don't know. I never thought I'd marry an Aggie, but it's worked out okay <laughs> for me, I guess. So that's cool. And you're a Texas girl um, from Dallas. So we got a few things in common. Corpus Christi. Yes. Corpus Christi. Yeah. What did I say? Dallas. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Yeah. I'm in Dallas. You're in Corpus Christi. Uh, you're down there by the water. I'm up here by the, the hips or doofuses, I guess, as you want to call them. So, uh, all right, cool. So one of the reasons why we've got you here on the podcast is you are, uh, you've been impacted by retinitis pigmentosa and I've heard you talk about it a little bit, but I kind of want to get your, your story from, from RP and, and you were diagnosed at a pretty early age. Do you think that was a, a good thing? Did that work in your favor from an early diagnosis and kind of just talk about that a little bit? Um, yeah, I have retinitis pigmentosa, which is a mouthful to say. So the abbreviated term that most people just call is RP. And I was diagnosed with RP when I was around five years old. Although when I was six months old, they kind of suspected because I wasn't really responding to certain visual cues like most babies would at that age. And then of course, when I started walking and crawling, I would have difficulty in the dark, which night blindness is one of the main primary symptoms of RP. So yeah, and as far as if it was a good thing being diagnosed that early, I, I would think so because I was able to start learning um, adapt adaptive techniques for blind people, whereas some people who have RP, since the, everybody's progression pattern is so differently and some people don't know they have it until you know their teens or even adults, so then... I think that whenever, especially like if you're an adult and you get diagnosed with RP or go blind at an older age, I think it's a little more of a learning curve because you've learned how to live your life a certain way being sighted. 
And then it's just kind of like this complete 180. Whereas whenever you've been visually impaired, essentially your whole life from childhood, you've only known one thing. Yeah, I can see where that would be the case. And I, I've spoken with lots of people, uh, I mean, relative to the podcast here, maybe 20 or 30 or so people with visual impairment. And it seems like the majority of the people I've talked to have had RP. And most of them don't know that until, as you said, much, much later, maybe teens or even, even into adulthood. So I feel like knowing early on um, the, the adaptation can, can start at a much early age that would make things easier. How, how was it when you were in school? Were you, uh, was, was it difficult to, to adapt or was the, was the, the schools or the institutions you were, were they pretty accommodating to your needs or were you, were you at regular institutions that just kind of said, figure it out kind of stuff? Um, I'd say it was mixed. So I know for me personally, I, I grew up in a really small town. So I live in Corpus Christi right now, but I grew up in a little town about 30 minutes from here called Bishop, population 3,300. Um, so very small school. Like my graduating class had probably like 90 kids. <laughs> so okay. a quaint um, group there, yeah. Yeah. So being in a small school, like I was kind of the token blind child. I was like maybe one of like three. And it was I was like one of three in high school, but like in elementary and, you know, young, younger years of schooling, I was the only one. And I think that made it a little difficult because teachers didn't really know what to do with me. But um, at the same time, my mother, because my, my mom's a single mother, um, she was really good about immediately looking into what resources were available to me. Our, my retina specialist was really good about putting us in connection to with like a uh, commission for the blind um, for the state of Texas. And they were good about coming in to the school and showing, you know, teachers and stuff like adaptive technology I would need or like different things. Like I remember the first time I ever like had a cane lesson, I was like in the second or third grade. So I was even introduced to a cane early. Although I read print pretty much up until my freshman year of high school. Um, I read large print and then, you know, then I switched to Braille I wasn't really proficient at Braille, <laughs> so I just went to, like, audio learning. And then when I got to college, by that point, I've kind of learned how to advocate for myself. So A&M Kingsville was a really good college, but their disability office wasn't really adverse in blindness as much as they thought. Like, I guess the simplest way I could put it was I was the blindest student they've ever had, if mm. that makes sense. Yeah. Like, all the other blind people they dealt with before still read large print, didn't really use a cane or a, or a, um, a seeing eye dog. So I had to kind of tell them what I needed. And if it was in their power to get it for me, great. If it wasn't, then I really needed to talk to my counselor from the Commission, commission of the Blind, which is now Texas Workforce Commission, um, to see if they could get it for me. So it, it was kind of mixed. Like, it was hard because I was like I said, I felt like the token blind child at my school a lot of the time. But then at the same time, I had a really good experience getting the things I needed when it counted because I've heard of people from other schools, like big schools, you know, where there's like 5,000 kids or whatever, and they kind of just fall through the cracks and don't really get the help that they needed. So I guess in that sense, I was really lucky. 
You, so you started using the cane in, in second or so grade. Uh, do you still use the cane? So my relationship with the cane was very uh, hostile. <laughs> yeah, I think for most, <laughs> in the at beginning. least the beginning it is, yeah. Yeah, the, the best way I put it was like I felt, to, in especially in my younger years, um, like a cane was like outing me as a blind person. Like I wasn't ready for people to know I was blind because up until a certain age, I was whatever, visually impaired. Like I didn't want to be called blind, mm-hmm. which now I think is total bullshit because it's just like, bitch, you can't see, like you're blind. <laughs> but now, but it's hard. That's a hard pill to swallow uh, for anybody, you know, um, no matter when you go blind or how you go blind. But I think especially when you're younger, but you know, so yeah, although I was getting training with a cane here and there at a very young age, I resisted until I was 16. Um, I didn't want to be seen with it. And it wasn't until high school, I wasn't doing well in high school. Like that's when my vision started to get the worst it had ever been. Like I wasn't able to read large print anymore. I wasn't very proficient with Braille. So I went from being like a really good student to kind of like just giving up. And you know, my teachers all had a meeting and, you know, thought it would be a good idea if I tried going to the the school for the blind um, in Texas, Texas school for the blind and visually impaired. So I was a junior in high school. So I went for like two weeks and I called my mom and was like, I cannot stand it here. (laughs) Get me out of here. (laughs) And I don't really know how to um, say this even as adult, like, I don't know how to, to word it, like what my, why I didn't like it there. I guess it was because I was used to living like, I hate the word normal. Um, but, but that's the best way I could put it. I was used to living a normal high school life, like being able to go to parties with my friends, have, have a sense of like freedom. And then you go to the Texas school for the blind and it's kind of like you're under lock and key. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that was really hard for me. And I, so I basically told my mom, like, I'll come, if you let me come back to public school where I've been essentially my whole life, like I won't resist the cane anymore. I will practice braille better. I'll do whatever it takes. And so I came back and then I, you know, just really like, I guess started taking blindness more serious and I became an A student again. And, and it's not even to say that, like, the school for the blind is terrible. It's just, like, a lot of those kids that were already there had been there since they were younger. And they were used to that structure. And I wasn't. Yeah, that's a that's a challenging time in anybody's life. Age, whatever, you know, mid-teens or whatever that was. So uh, any kind of shock to the system like that certainly would be, would be challenging. Um, but also, at the same time, uh, I, I can relate to the wanting to be distanced from the, the white cane and the outing, the identification that that puts on you as a, as a person. And I, I, I certainly can relate to that. I think most people can. Um, mm-hmm. It's just one of those, I guess, pride or I, I don't know what the exactly. Well, you, you studied psychology, right? So you probably have a pretty good handle on, on, uh, on, on what that, <laughs> what that is, but. Um, a lot of it is like the grieving process, like you're in denial then you're bargaining, <laughs> you know, then you go through anger, depression, and finally acceptance. So part of it, I think, is like grieving a sense of you, a, a sense that's being lost. And then I think the other part is like, yeah, like, 
we're all chasing normal, whatever that means. And like, it's hard to fly under the radar in society when you're carrying a cane or using a dog, you know? And I think that that's why most people resist the cane to begin with is it's because it's, it's, it's just kind of puts a target on your back and in many different ways. But at the same time, it's kind of a catch 22 because the more you resist it, the less independent you become, like you start to, you start to limit yourself like, Oh, well, this place is going to be too dark and I won't be able to get around by myself. So I'm just not going to go. So then you end up like isolating yourself and like making shit even worse when, you know, but hindsight's 2020. And I know for me that, um, after I graduated high school, I didn't really feel like I was ready to go to college right away because I was like, I've lived in this little town. I've gone to this small school how am I going to like make it at college so that I willingly went to blindfold training um, at the state rehabilitation center in Austin with Chris Cole. And I was there for eight months and I took, I did blindfold training uh, Monday through Friday, eight to five. So cane skills, travel, adaptive technology, and just wow, basically learn stuff for eight months. Yeah. Wow. I, uh-huh. I've, I've been there. I'm familiar with that center. Yeah. So the program is different now or even within the last like six years than it was when I was there. When I was there, you had to commit to be there a minimum of six months. Now they have like what they call like streamlined programs where you can pick what you want to be there for. So if you just want to go for cane travel, you can go for just like a month or two. But back then, like you had to do the whole enchilada. So, yeah, I was there for eight months. And then like once I left there, like I felt like I could do anything because you know, like I, I, I remained some sense of vision when I went there, but it wasn't reliable. So like when they take that away from you and you're forced to like just basically function in darkness, like nothing after that scares you once you master that. Yeah, I'll bet. Yeah, you mentioned the flip side or the catch 22 to the to the to the white cane. And like, you're right. One of the things that I always point at is crossing the street. Right. So I can see well enough to, to what I say be dangerous, right? So I can, I can get around, but when it comes to crossing a street or something like that, uh, I'm, I'm not very good at that. Uh, Mm -hmm. or there are some situations socially where having an outward facing identification that I don't see or can't see well enough to, to do something, um, would, would make life a lot easier for me. If, if I'm crossing the street and I can't really see that well, and I don't, you know, obviously there's a lot of potential for bad things to happen when I'm crossing the street, and if the car doesn't know that I can't see them, then they're going to react differently than if they know that I can't see them with the cane. So there are some benefits uh, to having that outward-facing, you know, public-facing view that this person has a has an, a visual impairment. So we need to make sure we don't, you know, hit them with our car kind of thing because <laughs> they're not playing chicken <laughs> with this. They just can't see yeah. us, right? So uh, there are some major advantages, but... I think everybody comes around on the cane on their own time and um and, and hindsight is 2020 and I think most people would like to have come around on it more quickly than than they probably eventually did anyway. Is that kind of your experience? Yeah, most definitely. And you know, it it's it's one of those things I think when you go blind as a child like you want to blend in with your peers so you resist it. And then I think for when people who go blinder later in life, it's because they, like I said earlier, they were used to living their life a certain way and they're not ready to embrace this new way 
of living. Yeah, well, I can relate to the latter part of that. I, I don't know that I was ready to embrace the uh, new way of living. But, you know, the thing that's kind of crazy about that is that um, either you embrace it or it's going to embrace you uh, because there's really no other, no other, there's not a third direction there. It's either you're going to figure it out or it's not going to be a, probably a good ending. So it's best to uh, just get in there and get jiggy with it, in my opinion, <laughs> anyway, you know. <laughs> So, all right, you go to college and you're studying psychology. I got, um, I double majored in psychology and sociology. Okay. And then you get out of school and you get into fitness, which obviously fits right into psychology and sociology. So exercise and fitness. What was the transition like getting into that? So after I graduated with my bachelor's in psychology and sociology, I enrolled in grad school. And whenever I was, you know, completing my master's program in counseling psychology is when I found bodybuilding. And it was kind of a total accident, to be honest with you. I was not an athletic person growing up at all. I, I wanted to be, but like I said, being the pretty much only blind student at my school, I wasn't really encouraged to participate in sports, even though if there was a way I probably would have. So I started doing modeling when I, when I was in college, just here and there. And I was very thin, like I'm five foot eight. And at the time when I was like getting into modeling, I was like 110 pounds. I was very small. Yeah. I kind of like would just, I was an avid runner. Like I would run five K's with a, with a sighted guide and running was my thing. Running was my jam. Um, but then I randomly came across an ad for a local bodybuilding competition on Facebook and I saw that there were like different divisions. And I think that's a lot of, that's a thing that a lot of people don't know about bodybuilding is like, they think bodybuilding and they're like, Oh, like these monster mass monsters, like even the women are mass monsters, but bodybuilding actually has categories that are divided by how muscular you want to be. So like for the women, for example, um, the least muscular is the bikini division, which is what I compete in. You're still muscular, but it's more of like a fitness model kind of look. So whenever I heard about that division, I was like, I think that's kind of what I want to do. Like that's the kind of look that I want to aim for. And I'm tired of being just skinny. So um, I didn't really know anything about weightlifting at the time. So I was like, all right, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to need to like hire my first personal trainer to get acquainted with weightlifting and like a structured schedule and see if it's something I even like. And then if I like it, I'll commit to doing this competition. So I hired my first personal trainer. And after the first couple of weeks of doing it, like I just instantly fell in love and I was like, all right, I'm going to commit to doing this competition 10 months from now. I did the competition. I didn't place well, <laughs> which is fine because I knew I wouldn't. It's very rare that you do super well at your first bodybuilding competition. You're kind of like dipping your toe in the water at that point. But I wasn't dead last either, so that was good. I took that as a victory. Yeah, so you're and... telling me there's a chance. That's right. <laughs> yeah, so after that, I was hooked, and I just was like thirst. Like, I was hungry to get better. Like, my, my competitive instinct just came out, and I was like, I'm going to get better. Um, so I hired an official like bodybuilding coach because not all personal trainers are equipped to prep you for bodybuilding. It's like, it's like almost sports specific training. Like you're not going to go to a tennis coach to teach you like football workouts. You know what I mean? It, it's just, yeah. it's very specific. Well, so just let me, let me just insert here. What is, what is bodybuilding? 
I mean, from a competition standpoint, how does what what are what are the things that in different weight classes or different classifications of that? What what are we looking for? So, um, for okay, so for women in particular, there's bikini, which is like I said, the lower level of muscularity, still muscular, but more of a fitness model kind of look. Um, then they have wellness, which is more of like if I had to like describe it, uh, kind of a pear shape. So. Wellness girls are very muscular at the bottom, like thick legs, thick glutes. Um, and then they're a little smaller on the upper body, but still a nice, still athletic physique up top. Then there's figure. They're kind of shaped like um, a wine glass, basically. Very symmetrical, but broad up top. And then you get it up there to like women's bodybuilding and women's physique, which are like the bigger girls, like just thick, dense muscle. And it's, it's very similar for the guys. So for the guys, they have men's physique, which is kind of like the bikini division. It's, it's a male fitness model kind of look. Then it goes up to classic physique, which is kind of like the Arnold Schwarzenegger look from back in the day, like the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And then you go up to um, men's bodybuilding, which is what they call like the mass monsters, like the freakishly big heavyweight dudes. Um and what they're judging for at these competitions is how well you fit the criteria of the category. So like the shape, they're judging you on your shape, um, your symmetry for the division, um, something we call conditioning. So your, your uh, balance of muscle versus how lean you are, because bodybuilding isn't just about being big. Like they want to be, you want to be lean enough to be able to see the muscle that those judges are looking for. Um, so it, it's really funny because I've always, <laughs> I hear a lot of people say like they think bodybuilding is so easy because you see how the bodybuilders look like on the day of the competition with the tan and they're all glazed up and the women, you know, especially we're in like our Swarovski crystal suits and stuff and you think it's just so glamorous and so easy. But what people don't see is the amount of work that we put in for months, even years leading up to that point to build our bodies. Like when I'm not prep, when I'm like prepping for a show. Like I'm a sweaty mess half the time. Like (laughs) (laughs) I'm in the gym with my hair, just a complete mess. I'm sweating, no makeup, just food, weights and sleep and repeat. Like that's, you know, and it's, it's kind of the same for football players. Like, you know, you, you see them on game day and it's fun and it's entertaining, but you don't see the 5am workouts that they get up to do. Like I get up and do 5am workouts when I'm in prep sometimes. So it's, it's its own, it's a sport. A lot of people will tell you that they don't think it is, but it really is. Maybe the competition day isn't, doesn't look like a sport. It's more of a celebration of all the hard work you put in, but definitely we train like athletes. Yeah, I'll bet. And you still do that? Yeah, I've been doing that since 2014. I actually just got back from a national level competition, uh, in December, which was in Orlando, Florida. And, um, yeah, I'm I'm taking some time off now because some of my feedback I got in order to get my pro card was that I need to get bigger shoulder caps and more definition in my my hamstrings. So since I'm a taller girl, it takes a little longer for me to put on muscle because my muscles are so elongated. So um, I'm going to be in a good improvement season for the next at least six months or so before I step back on stage. And I started with a new coach recently, so my programming's different and it's fun. Like I think bodybuilding to me, why I love it so much is because there's always room for improvement and I like the challenge. Yeah. Uh, okay. So how does a visual impairment work into bodybuilding? 
Is that is that an issue or something that you have to make some adaptations for? Or are there different categories or how does that work? So um, in bodybuilding in particular, like, no, like I compete with all the sighted athletes. Yeah, it seems like the vision thing wouldn't be as, you know, you're not driving cars or anything. So yeah, exactly. Or catching not- balls or anything. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I compete with all the sighted athletes. They they do have a wheelchair division, though, um, and they have adaptive divisions sure, for, like, yeah. uh, people with prosthetics and stuff. Yeah. Because, so, obviously, yeah. that's that's a different level, like, um, that's a different way to be scored. Yes. But, yeah, for, like, me, since I don't have necessarily, like, a physical disability, I compete with all the sighted athletes. The thing that, to me, that has been probably the hardest is um, the posing Cause when people are learning their poses, um, for bodybuilding, like they get the advantage of practicing in the mirror mm-hmm. before, yeah. you know, they get that muscle memory. It's me. It's like, I have to practice twice as much and have muscle memory from the get go and kind of try to imagine it in my head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and also to being really just like, like, I don't know how to, to put it other than like just having a fuck it attitude up there on stage because <laughs> it's daunting enough to go up there when you can see, but when you can't see and you go up there on a stage in front of hundreds of people, like a part of you has to just kind of leave fear at the door and just be like, I'm here. What's up? You know? Mm-hmm. But other than that, as far as the training and stuff, like it. I think it's kind of an advantage for me personally being visually impaired because like when I go into a gym or I work out or I train myself, like I'm not distracted by anything. It's literally just me. And and it's the same thing too. Um, like social media, like, Oh my God, like social comparison is the death of anybody who's trying to do something with their life. Like, I'll Mm -hmm. tell you that it doesn't matter if it's bodybuilding. Um, what if you're in a different industry, whatever it is, like, people will go and see what other people are doing and get discouraged by their success. And like, there's a lot of bodybuilders that do that too. They're going up, looking up their competition. They're like, wow, so-and-so looks really good. And I don't look like that. And then they just kind of like, whether you think it affects you or not, it really does. It's, it's a total waste of time. In my opinion, me, like, I don't care. Um, I, I just, I can't see well enough to really compare myself to anybody in the gym anyway. So for me, that's an advantage. Like I literally just eyes on my own paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. The social comparison thing, it, it's it's across the board for everybody in life in general. And that's yeah. why there's just so much craziness with social media in general. And And for me to know if I'm on the right track, like that's the importance of having a coach. Like my coach will tell me if I'm ready or not. I don't need to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've made sure that I've aligned myself with coaches who are very good at what they do. They're the best in the industry. So like, if I don't look ready, they're going to be like, we're not doing the show. Or if I look ready, they'll be like, you look phenomenal. Let's go kill it. Yeah. And that kind of ties into what you do anyway, because you're, you're, you're a coach yourself now, right? Yes. Yes, I am. And that also happened by accident as most things in my life did. <laughs> well, sometimes I think that's okay. Yeah, I I went to school, like I said, to be a therapist. And I did that for a little bit. And I just, while I was in grad school, kind of as a side hustle, people wanted me to like write up workout and nutrition programs for them. And I was just kind of like, well, okay, whatever, you know, it's some extra money. And I didn't, I was doing it, I guess you could say part time. But then after I, you know, finished my student internship as a counselor, I couldn't really find a job 
in my field, believe it or not. Because what a lot of people don't know about when you want to become a licensed professional counselor is, okay, you have to pass your state exam, which I did. And then you have to complete 3,000 intern hours before you get your full license. And Mm, that's a lot of hours. Yeah. So what a lot of interns end up having to do is working like two or three jobs because most places don't want to hire interns because when you're an intern, like, uh, like you can't bill insurance because you're not fully licensed. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these like counseling places, like that's how they make a lot of their money is like being able to charge people's insurances. So, um, it's very hard to find a position. So what you end up having to do is like working a few hours at MHMR here and there, maybe you're doing volunteer hours, here and there working for free. And maybe you're working at another like mental hospital doing like paperwork or intake. For me as somebody who can't drive, that wasn't an option for me to be commuting between two or three different jobs. Mm -hmm. So I basically was like, okay, I had a decision and I chose to make money for the demand that I was already getting, which was to train people. (laughs) That's like a good choice, Um, yeah. Yeah, I was like, okay, like I can keep chasing this this thing that may not ever happen or may not happen within the next six months and be broke, or I can seize the opportunity when there's like literally a job waiting for me right here. Um, and it's something I love to do. So yeah, I, I started, you know, training people. I started doing the online thing. And um, then I realized, well, hey, like I started to see a lot of mindset issues when I was training people people's minds like are really what stand in their way of sticking to a program or being able to get through a workout. Uh, The mind quits before the body does. So I was like, I should just start doing life coaching because to be a life coach, you don't really need a certification, um, which is really scary if you think about it. (laughs) it. It really is. But I was like, if anybody's qualified to be a life coach, it's me. I went to, I literally went to school for this and I passed my licensure exam to be a therapist. I'm just not a therapist right now. Um, now the thing with life coaching though, the difference between a life coach and a therapist is a therapist is going to tackle like clinical issues and clinical disorders like bipolar, depression, anxiety, addictions, all those things. As a life coach, you may tackle like some light stuff, like mild sadness, mild anxiety, Um, But you're mostly tackling like stress management and health and nutrition and happiness and confidence and things like that. The the lighter stuff, as I like to say, it's still important, but it's not as serious as the clinical stuff. And that was kind of already in your real house anyway, right? Yeah, exactly. So if I get a life coaching client that has like symptoms of what I recognize as like potentially bipolar or addiction issues or anything like that on the clinical side, I know enough therapists to be like, Hey, uh, you need to go see this person. Cause I can't, I can't tackle that. Cause I'm not licensed to do that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so is that when, is it blind fury fitness? Is that the name of your? Yes. So the name of that actually came about <laughs> through bodybuilding. Um, the very first posing coach I ever hired, he was basically telling me, the best way to be confident on stage is to create an alter ego. Like that's what he said. Um, he's like, most girls who go up there, the way they act on stage, like that's not who they are in real life. It's like, as soon as you step out from behind that curtain, you need to become 
a different per the person that you're you want to be, but you're scared to be in your everyday life. And and for you, that was blind fury. Yes, yes, it was. Um, and it was kind of it was totally a joke. Like I don't even know if someone else said it or if it was me. I was like, oh, my alter ego is blind fury. And then that's just what people started to call me as a joke. And then whenever I was trying to figure out a name for my business, my fiance is the one that said like, why don't you just call it blind fury fitness? Like that sounds like a badass name. And I was like, you know what? You're not wrong. Yeah, Let's, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> so that's how it came about. Yeah. Uh, kind of by accident again, I guess, as, as you would say. Yes. So um, what, what is it you do now with, with the whole uh, umbrella of stuff that you do, the coaching and the exercise and nutrition and all that kind of stuff. Is it in person, online? Where do you do all that stuff? And tell me more about that. So I do train in-person clients. We actually just finished um, building out our garage into a personal training studio. It's called House of Evolution. And it has all commercial grade equipment. Like it, it's, it does not look like a garage. Like I don't want people to think like, Oh, this is like some rinky-dink garage with like <laughs> a set of dumbbells, <laughs> some questionable benches. Like we have commercial grade equipment. We put, um, actual rubber gym flooring in there. Um, and it, it looks amazing. Like I love just even just hanging out in there now. Um, but yeah, so we have our own personal training studio connected to our house now that me and my fiance train our in-person clients. And now, even before COVID, like online training was becoming the popular thing. But even more so when COVID hit, the online training space just like blew up. Yeah, I bet. Because yeah. people did not want to give up their fitness. Or for some people, they got into fitness during COVID because they couldn't do anything else. And it really became an outlet for a lot of people. So um, in the online space, it's really cool because you can literally have clients from anywhere. Like we have clients all over the country. And yeah, so for the online training stuff, um, we have our own app and we sign up our clients on there and we're able to upload customizable workout plans, customizable nutrition programs. And our clients check in with us once a week via progress pictures because pictures are the best way to tell what the body is doing. Like the scale is a subjective number and it, it may say some things, but it doesn't give you the whole picture, especially if you're building muscle and trying to lose body fat at the same time. Uh, muscle's going to like register differently on the scale because it's more dense. So, so like, for example, um, a few years ago, years ago, before I got into bodybuilding at one point, um, I got up to about 150 pounds and I was like a size 11. Now, whenever I get up to like 150 pounds in my off season, I'm a size four. And it's because I have way much more muscle yeah, than body fat. Yeah, that's dramatically different size. Wow. Yeah. So the number on the scale when you're re like re doing a body recomposition is what we call it. Um, it. It really doesn't tell the whole picture. Pictures tell the story. So even when I check in with my bodybuilding coach, I send pictures. Um, so yeah, and obviously like pictures are a little hard for me to see. So my, my fiance, uh, looks at all of our client pictures and we know like more or less what we're looking for. Like, okay, are the, the thighs trimming down? Is the waistline coming in? We can tell when people are like holding a lot of water, excess water, or even stress. Um, stress is a huge one that interferes with losing body fat. So yeah, um, we can basically coach anybody anywhere. And I've had clients from ages 18 up to like 65. 
Um, I mostly work with women because, you know, that's just what people, that's, that's just the clientele that gravitates toward me. I've had a few male clients, but now mostly, um, I send them to Michael. That's my fiance. He work he has quite a bit of male clients. Um, so we're kind of like a team, I guess you can say in a sense. Back to kind of the psychology element of things as it pertains to nutrition and exercise and all that. Something else I've heard you talk about is, uh, having people find, helping people find their why, uh, why they do things. Is that something you still work with people? Oh yeah, definitely. That's, that's a mantra that I follow in everything I do. Um, it, that's the main reason why people don't stick to a fitness regimen or put themselves out there to follow their dream. Um, it's because they don't know why they want to do it. So when I'm interviewing a client, a potential client to sign up with me for coaching, I ask them, so why do you want to do this? And if it's something as simple as like, oh, I just want to look good. I like to dig deeper than that. Well, why do you, why do you care about what you look like? And that's when you start to get the deeper responses of like, well, I'm scared to even like have sex with the lights on with my own husband because I hate how, you know, overweight I've gotten, or I hate the way that my clothes fit. I don't even want to take pictures with my family anymore because I don't like the way, like we start to get into the deeper emotional side of why do you want to look different? Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. And then those are things that we need to tackle because if you, like I had a client and like she was, she said something along the lines of like, I've always been the fat girl. And it started to show in her training. Like she would, you know, give up mid set. Um, she would, you know, maybe give 50% effort on the nutrition. And I finally had to say like, you're still acting like you're the fat girl, you know? Mm -hmm. And that sounds harsh. But when I said that, it it kind of clicked. Like it, it was self sabotage in a sense. Like just because you've been the fat girl in the past, that doesn't mean that that's who you're you are now or who you're going to be ten years from now. If you think that about yourself, like everything you do and you say is going to manifest from that. Yeah. So I told her I was like, you need to start telling yourself that you're beautiful. You you're you're the in shape girl. And once she started doing that, it was like a 180. So yeah, I tell people, you need to know why you want to do something. And even if it's something as simple, like I want to be around longer for my kids. Like that's a huge motivator for a lot of women, you know, um, especially if you're unhealthy and you're on the bridge of getting diabetes, high blood pressure, all these other health ailments, then yeah, like your kids are a very good why as to why you need to get your shit together. Yeah. And contact Blind Fury and uh, she'll set you straight, right? <laughs> yeah as a life coach i get to say things i wouldn't get to say as a therapist <laughs> yeah you can't you can. no i i can't imagine a therapist saying um you sound like the fat girl that, that probably wouldn't go over very well in a therapy session no you know and that's the funny thing i tell people like they're like well like what's the difference between life coaching and therapy other than the, the things i covered earlier i'm just like well when you're a therapist you do something that we call circular questioning you know you don't really get to say exactly the things that you're observing right away. You kind of ask these circular questions to get the client to realize it first. Whereas with life coaching, you get to be a little more direct. Mm -hmm. It doesn't yeah. mean you get to be a jerk you know, by not, by, by no means. Like when I said, like, you're acting like the fat girl, like that were, those were her words. And I just used them to show her, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. how it was affecting her. So, you know, it, there are some subtle differences, but yeah, like I do like life coaching better than I did therapy, to be honest with you, because also too, like in therapy, you don't really get to touch a lot on 
the health and nutrition side of things. And it's such an integral part of people's confidence and their happiness, you know? Yeah, it is. What about accessibility in the, in the gym or in exercise or nutrition in general? Do you have, do you find that accessibility is something that to come by easily? Uh, has technology helped? Like just even just seeing, seeing what the, what weights you're using, the numbers on the weights, is there Braille? Is there, are there apps? Are there QR codes? What, what have you discovered in the world of accessibility as it, as it relates to the, the gym? As of right now, and even at the, the, the studio that me and Michael were working at um, for the past five years before we decided to build out our own studio, I was very privileged in the sense that <laughs> I was working and working out in private facilities. So things were always organized the way that my colleagues knew that I needed them to be organized. But whenever I go work out at like public gyms or even when I would work out by myself at the recreation center on campus in college, there were a little, there were some challenges because no, there are not Braille, there is not Braille on the machines. I would kind of just kind of have to ask somebody like, does this machine go by 10s or 20s? And then when I needed to change the pin um, to a different weight, I would kind of just have to count the holes and like figure it out. Mm -hmm. Um, As far as like plates and stuff and like, dumbbells i just feel the numbers they're usually raised um, embossed numbers on there Mm -hmm. so that's how i determine what weight is which and as far as you know the i guess you can say like the nutrition side of things um, i use a talking scale to weigh all my food when i'm meal prepping and stuff so there's lots of advances in technology on that end and even you know apps and stuff to track your food those are becoming more accessible as well, like my fitness pals one, um, in particular, the app that we use for our clients that we got, um, customized for our, for us, it's accessible. Um, which it was really a hard task to find because whenever we start before we were always like sending programs and like word documents and PDFs. And that was like fine in the beginning. But when we started getting like really busy having like 50 clients at a time, like, <laughs> It was real easy to get disorganized. So that's when uh, Michael was like, you know, we need to like come into the new century and like get an app where everything is like in one place and streamlined and just super organized. So I was like, okay, well, that's going to work for you. But I don't know how that's going to work for me because a lot of those apps are not good with voiceover technology. Mm -hmm. So we had to try like three or four different types before we found one that I could use um, to communicate with my clients and put the programs in there and stuff. So a lot of it's trial and error. Um, Something I will say that gets on my my nerves about cardio equipment nowadays is it's all touchscreen. Yes. And as you know, like, oh my God, like even, we even need some, stoves, some tactile stuff on there. Yeah. Yeah. Even stoves and appliances are starting to become that way. And yeah. that's just such a hindrance. So, yeah. So whenever I'm trying to find a gym, you know, if it's not my own, um, I try to find ones that have like the, you know, tactile buttons and they're not t- touch screen because it's yeah. just, it's just so it's impossible to use them. Yeah. The touchscreen does not do us any favors, uh, when it comes to, unless it's talking to you, which those, yeah. those would not. So you gotta like maybe bring your own pump dots or something, I guess. Right. <laughs> yeah. So other than that, you know, that's really, I mean, and I, I've had this question asked before, like to people like, we know, Oh, I'm like, I want to go work out at like a public gym, but I'm afraid I'm not going to know where anything is. If you're like in that situation, like you're probably just going to have to take somebody with you and kind of, 
learn the layout of the gym or you could even ask somebody at the front desk because you're a paying customer and they'll kind of go through the gym with you and kind of tell you like, okay, so, cause they usually are good about grouping certain machines together. Like, okay, all the cardio equipment is in this section of the gym. All the leg machines are on this side. All the arm machines are over here, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, you just got to kind of brave the elements a little bit and maybe not go when it's super busy. Like peak times are usually like after five on weekdays. Cause that's when everybody's getting out of work. So you could either go like during the day or go like after seven if you're worried about navigating around a bunch of people. Okay, Brittany. Well, awesome. Uh, it's been a lot of fun chatting with you. I think I've found you on Instagram, which is probably, I don't know, at least in my opinion, the best place to find you. There's some some pictures of you and a great place to see kind of what you're doing. Where should people look for, for Brittany Culp if they want to see what you're doing or maybe get their, get their acting gear and... Uh, uh, find their why. Yeah. So Instagram, I post there pretty consistently. Uh, there's also a link in my bio for people to fill out a new client form. To, if they, if you're interested in scheduling a consultation or need to reach out to me, you can also send me a direct message. My Instagram handle is culprit, C-U-L-P-B-R-I-T. And then of course, too, Facebook is a good place. Um, my URL is facebook.com slash Brit Culp. That's B-R-I-T-C-U-L-P. I do a lot of my business stuff through those um, two platforms. I don't have a website yet that sh should be coming within the next six months. Um, whenever I hired a business coach, he, the way he put it to me, um, which really makes sense if you think about it, is people, if you're going to be a life coach or a fitness coach or any kind of coach to somebody and their well-being, the best thing is to be authentic and I feel um, through social media, everything I post, for me anyway, like that's my most authentic self. And that's how I connect best with clients, friends, family. So I use those two platforms for my personal and my business. Tremendous. Well, we'll have those links in the show notes of the podcast as well. Brittany, thanks a bunch. Good luck. And uh, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Thanks for spending time with the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Please rate and write a review wherever you subscribe and connect and share with us at ambiguouslyblind.com.